0: in this episode of the table of content we are talking with john walker we are going to talk with him a bit more about his involvement in we are one body audio theater find out about some of his other creative pursuits how he ended up here and maybe what he is hoping to get into down the road stay with us that's all coming up next right here on the table of content Thanks so much for being with us here on this episode of The Table of Content. My name is Albert Sines. This is where we talk about everything cool, hip, new, and awesome happening with We Are One Body Audio Theater. And we are so lucky to have John Walker joining us for this episode. John, thanks so much for being with us.
1: Oh, no, it's my pleasure.
0: Uh, just as a disclaimer for everyone, we're uh, recording this remotely. We're not doing this in the studio, so we're kind of giving a free pass for um, any extraneous noises that you may hear—regular office noises, phones that go off, doors that close, clocks that chime. So uh, <laughs> uh, we'll uh, we'll proceed from that point. Uh, John Walker, uh, actually, you you are actually a uh, Dr. John Walker, is that correct?
1: <laughs> uh, actually, the highest degree you can get as an actor is an MFA in acting. Oh, oh, oh so okay. So I'm just a professor. Just a professor. Um, although, when you consider the, the requirements going into the MFA in acting degree, uh, it's <laughs> it's pretty alarming that anyone ever gets one.
0: <laughs> well, I, uh, I suppose that that's up to each person's just willingness to persevere.
1: Uh, absolutely. I mean... It, you pretty much have a one chance in five thousand, and then you have to go through quite an obstacle course of professional work. So you drew the line at the MFA,
0: and uh, that was that was well enough.
1: Uh, yeah, there's no higher degree you can get in acting, and after I received that, um, I was already being offered work, and so uh, I had to go to Los Angeles and begin the career. Sure, sure. So
0: let's talk about that. Yeah, uh, tell me a little. Tell me a little bit about your. Background. I was trying to dig up a little bit about you, but it's a a little sparse. So tell me kind of where your acting started and how you got to where you are with audio theater.
1: Oh, gosh. Um, Well, I'll try to do that without getting uh, (laughs) too much into a saga. I I began in regional theater right out of high school doing Shakespeare mostly. Um, I went through the undergrad years. And then I went to the American Conservatory Theater for my graduate degree, after which... uh, I was picked up by um, uh, Disney Studios and Warner Brothers and brought down to L.A., where I was showcased for different pilots and episodes and TV stuff and film. Um, I started doing TV and film, uh, and then I started doing theater locally. I received an acting award, and that led to some time on General Hospital and some other television stuff like dr quinn and i don't know 10 or 12 other different shows uh which then led to new york and an acting gig there that was headed for the lincoln center which led to more work in new york um and being an actor of that wasn't recognizable by name but recognizable by face and by casting directors i never had to worry about content of any projects um The interesting thing is you usually don't find out what the content of a project is until the very last audition after five other auditions Mm -hmm. and you get to read the script. And so fortunately, I never had to worry about content. And when I did start to have to worry about content and turn things down, that's when I stopped getting phone calls. Um, So that's when I shifted my uh, work to education and uh, moved out of the big city. Um, I got into word. We Are One Body, uh, really strangely, you know, uh, things were very quiet um, this uh, summer with filming and stuff, and uh, and I had just finished filming a, my Chesterton one-man show that was airing on EWTN, and a friend of mine who knew that I was really uh, kind of very <laughs> focused on Chesterton, we could say, if not obsessed, uh, let me know there were auditions for a Father Brown episode, um... And so I was just really excited because Father Brown is what brought me into Chesterton's world in the very beginning. Okay. So I auditioned for it and uh, fortunately was able to do it. And uh, then I just got really excited. Um, I used to do radio theater and audio books uh, for Anthony Ellis, uh, Esselin and some others. And so I, the idea of doing work on radio again and radio drama really appealed to me. So I, I guess I, I threw my hat in the ring for other We Are One Body projects.
0: Okay, well, that I appreciate. That was a very s- succinct synopsis. It sounds like <laughs> it could have been a lot longer. I'm sure. Um, uh, yeah, with my vo- with my love of my own voice, probably. So. <laughs> well, I want to go back to something that you said that I sure. thought was very intriguing. You said by name and face that casting directors just sort of knew. Uh, how they could cast you and you didn't have to worry about basically what you were being cast for the content of the program. Uh, and then you said that there was a point where you kind of had to start turning things down. Uh, so without you directly saying it, I was getting that you were having sort of a moral compass as far as what it is that you were, uh, what kind of work you were taking. Is that what I
1: was gathering? No, that's absolutely right. That, you know, I'll- I started with Shakespeare and I wasn't a cradle Catholic. Um, I was still exploring my faith, but I was very dedicated to a Christian world perspective. Um, And so Shakespeare was safe. I mean, Shakespeare was an underground Catholic himself. Uh, You go through the plays, you can find so much coded messages that he was probably sending out during the Protestant revolution. I mean, I know it's the Reformation, but I I try to use the correct term. Um, So I was really fond of doing Shakespeare. So that's why I started with him. Uh, But when I got into film and television, I was what you call a working actor. I think 2% of the union barely makes a living wage anyway. So I was that guy who would come in and be on a show for about a week uh, as a guest star with a lot of lines and then go off to another show. So I wasn't a name actor. I didn't have the power behind my name to say, well, I'm sorry, I won't do that scene, or I won't be in that. Um, But as you move up the ladder in work, you get more recognizable and bigger parts start coming. And some of those parts entail things that, well, that I I have a conflict of conscience, you know, I just can't do. Um, And that's not a great thing if you're not a name actor, if you want to continue working. Uh, Generally, once you say no... I mean, I guess you got to kind of understand um, the audition process. So they call you and you go in, you read the script, you go home. You come in a week later, you read the script in front of someone else, you go home. You come in and you read your scene the third time in front of, The casting director and maybe now a producer. Probably if there's food on the table, that's definitely a producer. You go home. (laughs) Two weeks later, you come back and you read the same scene for the director, the producer, the casting director. And now the casting director is talking like they've known you all their lives and discovered you. And there's more food on the table. And now there's an intern operating the camera. (laughs) At the sixth audition, you come and you might meet some of the other people in the film who are cast. And at that point, your agent, after six auditions, about four weeks, is making the negotiation for your contract on the phone. And at that time, the courier brings you your script. So now you can look at more than just three pages of your character. And then you open it up and say, oh, it's a show for HBO. Okay. Oh, I see. It's uh, I'm playing an alderman. Oh, that's cool. An alderman who runs uh, a ring of prostitution houses. Oh, right. And suddenly you go... <laughs> Well, this takes place in the 30s. It's a, it, it's a surrounded about the gangster stuff. Sure. And then you call your agent and say, look, um, I've got a problem. There's a lot of nudity and violence in this script. And they say, well, how do you feel about that? And I say, well, I can't. I can't be a part of that. And then comes the hard conversation. Sometimes your agent drops you um, when you turn that down. But there's been so much negotiating already on your behalf that the casting director, if you turn it down, will certainly say, that's it. We're not bringing him in again. Um, so you kind of end up being blackballed as one casting director talks to another casting director about the difficult time you gave them and why. And suddenly you find yourself without auditions for a long time. So it's a very tricky tightrope. Sure. Um, well, it can be. But there's no it's not really tricky to me. Um, I can't do work that goes against my faith or represents me in a way that is questionable for my faith that other people will see. I had kids at that time who were really young and I knew someday they might want to watch dad's commercial or dad's TV show appearance. They already saw me on Cartoon Network or heard my voice on a regular basis on TV. If they had something that they saw that was uh, immoral, or objectionable, I, you know. Yeah, yeah. So no, you, yeah, I, I just had to say no, and that ended up meaning I had to give give up the business for a while and, and move into education because no one wanted to see me again.
0: Yeah, is, uh, that's uh, you know, I, I I get it. It makes sense. You know, yeah. it's an unfortunate uh, reality. I think of the system in Hollywood. We'll say uh, sure. how how that works, but i I was just thinking uh, recently about. Uh, married, married couples who either one or the other spouse are both either actors or one's an actor an actress. And I was thinking, how do they, how do they go and do a scene that involves them doing something immoral with someone else and they come home and, you know, do they freely just tell their spouse, Hey, guess what I did today? Or, Hey, get this next movie I'm coming up in. (laughs) How, how, How do you sit comfortably next to them and say, I did this, uh, but you know, it's just it's just a movie, you know that 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 line. it's just a movie. and it always kind of rubs me. I'm like, yeah, but it's not just a movie. It's someone had to do something in the movie that was immoral, whether it's fiction or not. Yeah. Uh, so it always it does seem like how how can you just sort of go about your day to day and just sort of roll with it? and not have some sort of emotional tie-up inside or affect the other people around you that you love. Because, um, you know, they, they all have parents. A lot of them have kids. And what do you just tell them? Oh, well, you can't watch Daddy's movie. Sorry. Yeah, you know. yeah
1: exactly. I mean, some of these people, um, movie stars who have a name that's so recognizable um, can ask for a body double in certain, at certain times. But even then, you're still presenting something in a film you know, that, sure. that's just not right. I mean, we're we're, we're showing a, a kind of model for relationships between people, forgetting about any kind of violent contact, that, that just isn't right. And so you're sending a message that if you, you know, that ever since people watched movies from the 1930s and started smoking because Humphrey Bogart and, and Ingrid Bergman smoked, <laughs> um, the same thing happens in many different other attributes that film model for society. So... Um, you know, I don't want to be a part of something that's modeling something wrong well, and detrimental.
0: Well, I, I, I commend you, sir, uh, for just holding your ground. And like you said, I, I think you were trying to say that it really wasn't a hard decision for you. It just was, well, I can't do it. It wasn't even a, like, well, let me think about it. It just, no, I can't do it. And, that's, and that's, that takes some strength, I'm sure, and some conviction.
1: Well, I, I went to an audition when I was very young in Hollywood, um, after I'd been working for quite a while. And it was an R-rated movie, but I didn't know really what the thing was about. And when I got in, I was fortunate enough to talk to the casting people about what it was. And I said, right then and there, you know, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And they said, what, are you a prude? And I was on my way out the door saying, no, it's not that I'm a prude. I just know the difference between right and wrong. Yeah. And, um, you know, this is this is close to being pornography and that's about as evil as evil gets. Right. Um, Right. So, uh, being inside the Hollywood factory, not just outside at the shoot, waiting for the product to come out. Um, you tend to meet people whose careers and lives were ruined by parts. They took hoping to be a splash on the screen very quickly. And, uh, so it's you see, or you are constantly reminded of what those bad choices can lead to emotionally, personally. So, yeah, the choice isn't too hard. It was funny. Right about that time is when I met my wife in Hollywood and we went on our first date, which was uh, I had to meet her at mass, you know, <laughs> which, That's uh, great. yeah, she asked me if we'd meet at mass at uh, this um, church down near Crossroads of the World on, on Sunset Boulevard. And when I said, yeah, sure. Um, I think that kind of took her back, you know, because I was a Hollywood actor. Um, so a lot of these things about conscience and choice were coming to me at that time. So, yeah, it wasn't really a hard decision. Well, very, very Lost a lot of money, but lost lost a lot of career, but. (laughs) Yeah, but your, but your, but your soul is still intact. Absolutely. And I can talk to my kids about integrity. And when my kids got to be 18 or 20 and wanted to talk about dating and theology of the body, I I could. without looking like a hypocrite exactly
0: well let's uh let's move up here a little bit uh let's move into the audio theater with we are one body um you said that uh you were you were getting into chesterton and then the father brown stories came up and i'd like to ask what was it really about father brown and his character that you were so interested in that you wanted to you wanted to take a dive at it
1: yeah sure it was just that um When we were in Vermont and I was teaching, we had no cable TV. We could barely get the um, rabbiters to pick anything up, but we could pick up public television. And one night while I was looking for something, a masterpiece mystery came on with a Father Brown episode, I think from the 80s. And I thought, oh, wow, this could be good. But as I turned it on, I thought, you know, I'll bet you halfway through it, the priest turns out to be the bad guy (laughs) or is, is a doofus or is, you know, not... Not the great character. I'll watch it anyway. And when it ended and I saw that the priest was the smart one and the hero, I was really intrigued. So, you know, I I rewinded a little bit and took a look at the name under the title and said, G.K. Chesterton. Who's that guy? And that, you know, the avalanche started after that. Sure. And that's what intrigued me. You know, the idea that they made a priest the main character in solving mysteries based on his understanding of the human condition through all the confessions he's heard as the really intuitive, smart hero of the piece. And that blew me away and pulled me in automatically. You know, that, then I had to read more.
0: You know, it's, it's interesting to find, uh, well, I mean, okay. So it was the original stories were, were written, you know, a century ago. Uh, but, uh Hollywood's adaptation of it what an uh, what an interesting way because really the last time you sort of see priests in any sort of positive light you've got to go back to like Bing Crosby you know and <laughs> yeah. uh, you know and you see a, oh yeah that's a that's a nice well well-meaning priest and then then it sort of starts to take a dive somewhere in the 60s and 70s and priests are sort of getting you know uh, I don't know what what are you getting involved in and then of course you know further in 80s, 90s, 2000s it's suddenly, it's really kind of tanking. So Father Brown is sort of this uh this sort of light in the darkness, you know, to be mm-hmm. able to capture a priest and make him the main character, make him good, make him holy, make him moral, make him smart, intriguing. Uh that's 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 a real that's a real win from where i sit.
1: Yeah, well i've always been a mystery uh a fan an avid fan of mysteries from Agatha Christie and onward and Sherlock Holmes so it was just that interest in mysteries already that led me to watching but once i started reading the books and finding out just how great this character was because he was a priest then i, I was blown away you know
0: so you know chesterton has a quote and he says plug. just just one <laughs> just just one. An on- <laughs> it's the only one I ever found. So, out of the thousands of quotable lines that Chesterton—I'll uh, correct myself here—out of the thousands of quotable Chesterton lines, there's one specific where he says it's really short. He says, "Literature is a luxury; fiction is a necessity." And I—I wow. I feel like the you look at the Father Brown sort of mystery series as well as other stuff that he's written, I'm sure. But you see how fiction actually can help sort of uh, uplift and perpetuate the real world. I mean, you have a priest and it's you know it's not a fantasy story that he wrote here. This is sort of based in reality. but you can take fiction and you can use fiction to support the reality of the world that we live in. And I think that Father Brown is a good sort of example of how fiction can do that.
1: Oh, sure. I mean, Chesterton would talk, if he were to, to talk today, he would talk for hours on how fairy tales teach moral virtues and and teach uh, the imagination it takes to dive deeper into your faith. Um, Absolutely. I think uh, his appreciation for fiction from fairy tales all the way up to the mysteries or the plays he wrote um, all have to do with how these are the stories from common sense, from a common background in human nature that help propel us to a deeper understanding of who we are and why we're here.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, now, what about you? Are you are you a really big fiction fan yourself?
1: Uh um, well, you know, I love George MacDonald. I love uh, C.S. Lewis and, and Narnia. I I, I love Tolkien. Um, I, I, it's kind of a, a classical fairy tale taste. But then again, I'll pick up P.J. Woodhouse whenever oh, I yes. whenever I need a laugh um, and be completely obsessed. With his wordsmith skills. <laughs> yeah. My wife loves Vote House and she'll pick up a book
0: and she'll plow through it within a day or two and she'll, she'll call out to me from across the house. I have to read this line to you. I have to read to you something that Bertie says or something that Jeeves says. And uh, it really is such, he was such, like you said, a wordsmith. So good at using words to portray a character in such a very unique fashion.
1: You know, Evelyn Waugh, of Brideshead Revisited fame, said he was the greatest English writer that he knew. Um, and that's quite a lot of praise coming from Evelyn Waugh. Um, but it's because of he was able to take um, jargon and vernacular from all these different walks of life um, and combine them into a kind of woodhouse, you know, common language. <laughs> uh that was absolute wordsmith quality and on the level of Shakespeare as far as creating and inventing words. So I always go to him mostly because I want to laugh out loud yeah um what I'm reading um but because I've never walked away from reading one of his books that I haven't walked away happier from. So I, I suppose when it comes to tastes my, my tastes run along the lines of fiction, fairy tale and then you know that kind of humor
0: mm-hmm. Very good. Well, uh, before we kind of wrap up here, I'm just interested, as far as your potential future with We Are One Body Audio Theater, what would you like to sort of uh, continue or maybe take part in?
1: Well, of course, uh, well, I just did a Beatrix Potter uh, the other day, which was great reading one of those. Um, Of course, you know, I'm going to keep uh, dropping hints about uh, Blanding's Castle. Okay. um, because who wouldn't who, who wouldn't want to play Lord Emsworth and um, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll always be ready for more Chesterton. We're gonna we're gonna take the Chesterton one man play I did at EWT and it's gonna be a new series called Chesterton Station. So you know I'll always be looking for more topics on that. But you know I listen to the radio station every day anyway. I was listening to it long before I ever did any of the the audio theater so I'll probably just remain a fan if nothing else it's just great that such wonderful material is being put out there for people to pick up on and to to listen to
0: so John if if Chesterton were to comment on we are one body audio theater what do you
1: think he would say Um, do that one again (laughs) Uh, I think if Chester was to comment on audio theater he would probably have something to say that the world owes a miraculous and well founded thanks to someone who has created a a way to bring the greatest stories and writers including myself to a world starving for hunger Starving for literature and imaginative works, uh, I think he would find probably a heck of a lot more words than that as well. I'm sure he would. John Walker, absolute
0: pleasure to <laughs> spend some time talking with you. I'm so glad that you have found your way into Weird One Body Audio Theater, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, if you want to hear uh, any of their productions so far that uh, John Walker's taken part in, I invite you to. Go to our YouTube page uh, for We Are One Body Audio Theater and look up some of the Father Brown mysteries that they've done so far. You can also check us out at our Facebook page for We Are One Body Audio Theater or, as always, fall back to our website, theater.org And we are looking forward to more participation from the great John Walker. John Walker, thanks so much for taking some time to be with us.
1: No, yeah, my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for taking some time here on the table of content. We look forward to having you tune in for the next episode. Take care.